0: ...transforming, musical, linguistic objects...
1: Greetings from cyberdelic space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, here we are, all back safe and sound from Burning Man. Well, safe anyway not so sure about the sound part, if you know what I mean. Some of you may remember that line from an old Willie Nelson song that goes, After taking several readings, I'm surprised to find my mind still fairly sound. And uh, since I know that many of you psychedelic saloners were at this year's Burning Man Festival, I suspect that you may be feeling the same way right about now. I... I think it was Alex Gray who said he loved Burning Man because there were so many freaks there. And, uh, of course, he was using the word freak in its positive form. That's what the good guys called themselves in the 60s. While the press called them hippies, they called themselves freaks. But if you take that word in its negative form, then I... I think you have to say that Burning Man is populated by normal people, and the freaks are the ones who are out here in the default world supporting the Bush crime family. But I don't want to get started down that road right now because today I want to talk about the positive side of life. And one of the best places to find all the good things in life is at Burning Man. Now, I know that some people have called Burning Man the world's greatest party, but Personally, I'm not in favor of saying things like that. I can't remember if it was a speaker here in the salon or somewhere else that pointed out the fact that this business of picking a favorite song or a favorite color or a favorite vacation spot or whatever is simply a way to further condition us into a culture of competition. Why do we expect little children to have a favorite color or a favorite uncle or a favorite anything? When you think about it, what's the advantage in life to having a favorite song? And what are you supposed to do if you find a song you like better than your favorite? Are you obligated to go around to everybody you know and update them on your new favorites list? I guess you can see that uh, spending 12 hours alone driving home from the Playa gave me plenty of time to uh, think about weighty things like this, huh? (laughs) So, let's get on with today's program. Which is going to be a summary of a few of the great Palenque Norte lectures at this year's Burning Man Festival. If you had a look at this year's schedule, it should be easy to tell that we tried to pack way too many talks into too short a time. A program with 39 speakers over four days on the Playa is nothing short of insanity, and to that I plead guilty. I suspect that uh, every one of the speakers would have liked to have had at least twice as much time, and the audiences wanted even more. It was a great lineup, though, of some really powerful minds, and if the goddess of the playa smiles on us, we may even have recorded most of them. However, uh, as in previous years, our number three backup system which is my ancient but trusty little cassette tape recorder, may have been the only uh, recording device that caught most of the talks. Of course, the uh, sound quality isn't top-notch, but hopefully you'll be able to pull out some of the wisdom and energy that filled our Black Rock City Lecture Hall this year. In time, I'll sort through some of the mini-discs and videotape we also used to record this year's Planky Norte lectures, but... In the interest of getting this podcast out in a reasonable amount of time, I'm going to play a few sound bites today that were recorded just as they sounded in the big tent in Theon Village. We'll begin with a cut from one of the best-received talks this year, which was given by Mark Pesci. He spoke to a packed tent just before our panel of psychedelic artists came on. Here's a little sample of what Mark had to say.
2: John the Baptist. I am not declaring the coming of the end, nor, should I make clear, did Terence McKenna. He put his received wisdom out there, and he did not say, take and eat. What he said was, take this and test this. And I think his greatest disappointment was that so few people actually took That challenge up. Instead, his fans took up his story. They took it up hook, line, and sinker. They set their clocks and they waited, but they did nothing. And I think that that is this era's great disappointment. Now, what would we do if we really believed in our hearts that the eschaton was so close to hand? That knowing would transform us. It would transform our actions into perfection. It would transform our vision into utter clarity. It would transform our hearts into perfect love, perfect trust, and perfect understanding. And I do not see this. And yet we hope. And if only because of my own association with McKenna, people often look to me for that confirmation that it is coming, that it is true. Even when it's not on the menu. Last year I gave a talk at Mind States, I talked for 45, 50 minutes about social networks, organizing principles, new forms of communication, BitTorrent, media distribution networks, and how this was all changing the way we communicate, and we opened the audience to questions, and the first question was about the I Ching and the end of time. I hadn't talked about that, but because I'm associated with McKenna, and because people want to believe in this impending end of everything, despite any evidence they may or may not have of their own uh, senses... They basically completely ignored everything I'd said in the hour before that and just wanted to focus on this one idea of this. Now, I'm making a public statement here today at Palenque Norte. I have grown weary of this. I have had enough of this. And fortunately, I'll have no more of this. For now, I will simply mourn. Now, for my part, I have often equated the eschaton with the idea of technological singularity. That's what I want to talk about now. That's a term that was coined by science fiction author Werner Lynching in a lecture that he gave at NASA Ames back in 1993. I'm a friend of Werner's. And he and I have talked about technological singularity at great length, philosophical terms. And I remember in one of our first conversations, he suddenly just sort of stepped up and said, you are a gradualist, as if it were some sort of slam. Now, I am perfectly willing to admit that this may be true. And I do admit that I hold to a certain sort of technological determinism. I do believe that we will ascend into something that at this moment is ineffable, and unknowable and utterly different. But will this happen in a twinkling of an eye? I think maybe in retrospect it will look that way after we have recognized that the singularity has occurred. Now... A lot of people talk about the technological singularity as tied up into the idea of the rise of artificial intelligence. And if you read all of the signs as you were coming into camp, you saw a long quote by Ray Kurzweil, who I'll come to a little bit later, who's sort of the main proponent of this idea. I do not believe that there is such a thing as artificial intelligence. I don't believe that there's any sort of superhuman intelligence that will rise and overwhelm us all. It simply doesn't work that way. We don't have precedence in the natural world for that, or any historical or scientific record that it has ever happened. Instead, nature works by subsumption. When something new emerges, it subsumes the forms that came before it. The mitochondrion, which are in every cell in your body, are proof that this is the way that nature works. And so, what I would say is that there is no such thing as artificial intelligence. There is only intelligence, whether it's a vegetable, or animal, or mineral, all intelligence is one. So, back to Kurzweil. He's perhaps the most visible proponent of technological singularity, and for years, through his books, he's promoted the idea of another kind of eschaton, where the machine, intelligence, the machine intelligences multiply their capabilities so rapidly that they transcend all forms of human understanding. And he says, that's the singularity. And it seems to me that as interesting as that idea sounds, and kind of rational as it sounds, it actually could only be possible if those machines were born in a universe entirely separate from us. But this is not that world. And we can draw, draw a line between ourselves and our machines no more than I can draw a line between myself and my eyeglasses. These are prosthetics, these machines, or perhaps looking the other way around. We are theirs. But neither can really exist without the other. So this rise of artificial intelligence, it's a misapprehension. The rise of intelligence, however, that
1: seems historically inevitable. As you can tell from the sound quality, that recording was made on a cassette recorder that wasn't connected directly to a mixing board of any kind. And with the exception of just five talks, these tapes may be the only recordings that survived the playa. (laughs) Nonetheless, I'm going to podcast the ones that are salvageable, like the one you just heard. And thanks to Brian, one of the Cool people from Seattle who came by and loaned us his mini disc recorder. We did get recordings of the artist panel, Eric Davis, Daniel Pinchbeck, the Shulgans, and Nick Sand. And those will be the first talks that I'll be podcasting in the next few weeks. And a little side note here to Brian hey, I really appreciate your letting us use your recorder much more than you know. And uh, I promise to return it to you as soon as I can. And for those of you who have never been to a burn, Brian's loan of his brand new mini disc recorder to a complete stranger and under less than optimal conditions for operating a piece of equipment like that, well, that's exactly the kind of spirit you see all over Black Rock City, which, uh, by the way, is the name of the town the Burning Man participants build and then tear down each year. And now that I've told you about our good recordings, I'm going to subject you once again to some sounds from my cassette recorder, since it's quicker to grab these sound bites from that little device for right now. And I can almost hear you sound guys moaning out there, but until Brian and I reconnect and he tells me how to transfer the digital recordings to my PC, I just don't want to go through all the learning curve it's going to take to patch yet another connection to my already creaky old PC. So you'll just have to bear with me for the time being, and I'll forge ahead now and play a few minutes from the talk that Eric Davis gave, which he titled Pharmacology and the Posthuman Future. In the background, you'll hear the normal Burning Man chatter that never stops, but once you've been there for a while, the never-ending music and voices just become part of the ambient environment, and you kind of tune it out. It certainly didn't distract anyone in our lecture tent from listening to what Eric had to say, and hopefully it uh, won't distract you either.
3: But there's sort of was a deeper question behind that, and this brings me, thankfully, to my main topic, which is really what all this stuff is about. Is all this sort of... Uh, in, in particularly in a spiritual or alternative religious context, is all the sort of grasping after new spiritual forms of meditation, of yoga, of cults, of gurus, of masters, of psychedelia, of mind-body practices, hol- holotropic breathing, excellent self-help groups, that whole sort of sense of reconstructing uh, the human spirit. Is it ultimately r- really about religion? No. Now I think this is a modern phenomenon that leaves aside the homogeneity and the authority structures of traditional religion. But is it even really about spirituality when I mean, we throw that word around? But what do we really mean by it? And what I came to see is that while there are certain, obviously, this is you know about spirituality. What is spirituality about? What is spirituality about in a historical context? Meaning, where are we now, and where are we going? Is it just about Re-plugging in with the na- with the nature or the cosmos or the goddess or the god that we feel is missing from modern from the modern world or is something else going on with this and I think something else is going on and this is where we get to the prophetic dimension of visionary culture and I'll talk more about pro- prophecy later because what I think is being prophesied in this experimentalism which we can talk about in terms of the history of California or the history of Uh, you know, new age or or new religious movements, and we can certainly talk about here, the tremendous emphasis on invention, on creativity, on can-do, on technologies of perception. Uh, This is all pointing towards something that I think is on the horizon, and this is what I call the post-human self. That there's something going on inside the self and inside the way that we experience ourselves and the way that we perceive ourselves that is already happening, and will continue to happen more so. And so, even if we leave aside global warming, potential catastrophe, the takeover of the machines, global war- you know all the myriad of fearful uh, uh, scenarios that lie on the horizon, that I think we face another kind of apocalypse. And I use that word very, very gingerly because I don't mean a discrete moment in time when everything changes. I mean something more like the original term means, which is revelation. And we have uh, certain revelations about the self that are on the horizon and coming down the pike. And they're not necessarily so easy to take down. Uh, And and I'll I'll get to that in in a little bit. So what's happening to the self? There's two main ways I think about uh, imagining or understanding how we're transforming our sense of subjectivity, of who we are, of how we feel on a day to day basis. Uh, and those are media, particularly electronic media, and pharmacology. Uh, in the media space, one of the things that characterizes the modern world, and people don't usually think about it in these terms, is that it made a pact with electricity. In the pre-modern world, you know, they tended to organize nature in terms of maybe four elements, sometimes five, air, earth, fire, and water. And these were imagined to be the kind of animating spirits behind all the different kinds of matter one would encounter, including the human body, including the temperament. Our own personality tendencies, our own temperament was seen as a kind of elemental uh, operation in sort of in alchemy and in uh, traditional medicine. And then something comes along. the the sort of capturing and use of electricity. And in my view, electricity is as fundamental as one of these elements in terms of the way that it feeds in and transforms our sense of material reality. Uh, And just to give you a a little bit about that, electricity in its nature has a kind of cosmic uh, dimension. It, it ties us to the cosmos in a more direct way than even the elements do. Although, well, of course, the elements are ultimately, you know, products of vast stellar activity. Uh, by using a, you know, by to- by using your toaster in the morning, you're tweaking particles on the far end of the universe. That's just that's what they tell us. So even the most mundane uses of this, in many ways, very mundane uh, technology, electricity, does not hold the enchantment for us now that it once did. Uh, we're participating in a kind of cosmic reality. But I think in making that pact, electricity has certain plans for us, plans that are, not, that are sort of coming online, have been coming online, things like the collapse of space and time, things like the weaving of a collective intelligence, things like the, speed, the incredible speeding up of our inventiveness, our possibility spaces, our abilities to envision, so that rather than just talking about the computer, you can see all of electrical and electronic media as kind of an expression of this pack, this elemental pack with the spirit, the way that we think of air, earth, and fire as as having spirits, like in, in a pagan ritual. Electricity has a spirit, but it's not necessarily an easy one. It comes with some, some difficulty because it tends to undermine our rooted... Animal, nature, our sense of being, living in a world of four elements. You know, for the vast majority of human life, 99.99999% of it, we're like running around where most of the things we encounter, almost everything we encounter is nature, some form of nature or another. The weather, the food, the the rocks that we're, you know, hunkering behind. Yes, we make little primitive shelters or have very simple forms of culture, but we're mostly swimming in nature. And now we're swimming in culture, in largely electronically mediated culture. And that this process, this feedback loop is going to intensify and intensify. And the kind of dislocation and sort of uh, uh, fluidity, multiplicity that one can experience in visionary states where images and patterns and sounds and lights all sort of feed into this kind of virtualized, hyper-dimensional experience, is going to increasingly become the reality of media. Uh, Alex talked a little bit about uh, computer graphics and the ways in which these allow for an incredible intensification of our ability to actually simulate.
1: Man, I wish we had time to get into Eric's and Mark's complete talks. Right now, they both were extremely compelling and gave us a lot to think about. I was lucky enough to catch a presentation Eric made last July at Kathleen's salon in Venice Beach and was quite taken by some of the original ideas that he has come up with in his new book, Visionary State, which is not just about California, but is also about the state of mind so many of us psychedelic saloners care so much about. But today's program is more of a decompression experience for me, and I hope it helps a little for those of you who are also at Burning Man this year. It's hard to believe that beautiful Black Rock City that we worked so hard to build has now completely disappeared from the playa. And thanks to those fine people who are still out there picking up peanut shells and cigarette butts, The five square miles or so of Black Rock Desert, where the festival is held each year, will remain the most pristine spot within many miles. Leave no trace. It's a great way to live every day, not just at the burn. Well, enough of my preaching, huh? Let's take a listen to our next Palenque Norte speaker, a man most of you are already quite familiar with, and that is Daniel Pinchbeck. As you already know... Daniel has followed his groundbreaking book, Breaking Open the Head, with an equally impressive book titled 2012, The Return of Quetzalcota. I'll have more to say about Daniel and his new book when I podcast his full presentation, but for now, here's a little sample of what Daniel Pinchbeck had to say at Burning Man this year.
0: Happening
4: right now, and it's uh, very, very... A difficult uh, process, and, I, and by no means do I think that my book completes the process. Uh, and in the book, I also talk about quantum physics and how quantum physics kind of, you know, if you read like the Tao physics or Goswami's the software universe, some of this stuff was kind of banalized in, in what the bleeps we know but there seems to be this relationship where you can say that quantum physics supports certain ideas in, or that's much better, certain ideas in, um, you know, Eastern religion, that, that actually consciousness is fundamental to reality rather, rather than matter. Um, so it gives us this whole shift uh, in our perceptive, perception. So, so then the question is, we're at 2006 now. How could such a massive transformation happen so quickly? You know? um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting situation. I, so I also want to note that, you know, if, if, even if you didn't pay attention to the Mayan calendar, there are a lot of people, and I'm reading this book called The Chaos Point uh, by a scientist, and he says that the next five years are absolutely critical, that it's either a breakdown or a breakthrough for the human species. You know, he has no mystical reference to a Mayan calendar. Uh, if you look at the species extinction crisis, uh, 25% of all mammalian species are going to be extinct in the next 30 years. So if we're somehow going to, you know, and we can see what's happening with climate change and that acceleration, uh, we can see what's happening with the, the forests, you know, there's all these feedback loops are now being triggered in the system. So the, the forests, you know, are burning, releasing more carbons, more forest burn, Polar ice caps are melting, they keep melting faster, I'm sure a lot of you saw the inconvenient truth. Um, so we somehow have to face this this, this this sort of disaster we have in our hands. Um and we have to do it very quickly. If, I think basically, if the human species is going to survive in any decent form, it really is going to have to take place the next uh, two to three years. So There's going to be, have, have to be a uh, very, very a deep transformation of consciousness and perspective. And one way I talk about it in the book is we're going to have to go from looking at ourselves as kind of individuated egos out for our own gain in this kind of uh, capitalist game to really thinking about ourselves as a sentient aspect of a planetary ecology and transformation and how do we use the the skills and the knowledge base and, and and the technical capacities that we've developed to really help that that process and and to, uh, you know, ameliorate the the damage that we've done uh, up to this point. Um, And um, it's a little bit, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit like a Hollywood movie in a way. I think it's like, you know, Mission Impossible, how there's always, like, these down-to-the-wire endings, you know. It may be that, um, you know, God is just like a great film director, you know, and he wants us to, like, just get it right at the last second, (laughs) the other, so so and the other aspect that interests me is, um, um, okay, so, so we're going to need to deal on a, on a sort of technical, meta-strategic level with the global situation. We're going to need like a new kind of rational organizing principle for, for the planet, and we're going to need to make that happen pretty quickly. Um, and then, but then there's this other level, which is the psychic level, which to me is, is equally crucial. And that's where most of the people who are part of the liberal establishment, like those who feel the inconvenient truth, just don't even have the capacity to address that. And I, I see that this, this psychic evolution is taking place. These synchronicities are, are happening. So the way I think about it is. If you look at the 1750s, you know people had seen lightning and had seen, you know, shocks and so on, but they had no idea that you could bring lightning, into, you know, bring electricity into the planet and make it into a transformative power for the whole planet. And um, once they understood that and managed to do it. And at first, it was just a very weak trickle. You know, and, then, and then suddenly, they, in a century and a half, which is absolutely nothing in terms of evolutionary time, the whole planet got transformed. And we, and we you know, absolutely transformed the planet through, through electricity and industrialization. So what if we're at that same moment with uh, the psychic uh, energy, psychic, psychic phenomena, and there's going to be this tipping point where we're going to learn how to access it for, for transformation uh, on a very visceral level? maybe through global psychic ceremonies or concentrations of energy. Uh, at the end of the book, I go to visit the uh, Hopi Indians and hear their prophecies from one of their elders. Um, and um, that was amazing. Right? But I sort of knew all of that already. Um, but I was reading this uh, Cambridge uh, anthropologist who went down and lived with the Hopis for a few years. This guy was a total secular materialist. And in his book, he was like, look, I'm really embarrassed to say this, but sometimes I would go to these rain dances, and they would work. You know, it would be 120 degrees, clear blue sky. They would dance for 20 minutes. Clouds would gather, rain would come. You know, and he also said that sometimes he would go to these Hopi elders, and you know, he'd have a whole list of questions for them, and they would just answer the questions without him asking them one after another. You know, so, but so I mean, like to me, like I take that seriously. Like if the, the potential is for these indigenous magical tribal cultures to have had a real relationship with elemental forces that they could influence weather patterns. You know, how fascinating is that when you think about the climate change uh, situation that we're in? And, um, you know, maybe we could reverse that. And maybe this kind of critical threshold that we're being pushed into is the only way to force us to uh, access those latent psychic powers. Because as long as people are, like, relatively comfortable, they're relatively asleep. You know, it's only when people are... Forced into crisis, that they become super inventive and super experimental, you know. So, so maybe that's one of the things that, that's taking place at this point in time. But I just wanted to also talk about this title of the
0: talk, which was "Cancel the Apocalypse," which is from a Solman's bomb. And um, as you can
1: probably tell, we could have had just Mark, Eric, and Daniel as the only speakers we featured this year, and I'm sure the crowd would have stayed there for three days just interacting with the three of them. But, fools that we are, there were another 35 speakers we fit into the lecture series this year. And four of them, I believe, are right out there on the leading edge of the art world. You probably already know who I'm talking about. Roberto Venosa, Martina Hoffman, Alison Gray, and Alex Gray. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, we did actually use one of our five precious mini-discs to record the discussion they had with what turned out to be one of our largest audiences of the week. In the interest of time, and since I'm running out of steam already, I'm only going to play a little segment from one of Alex Gray's riffs, but before too many weeks pass, I'll get the complete recording of this panel of artists out to you in another podcast. Now here's a little taste of Alex Gray, and I'll follow that with a shortcut from Allison Gray's opening remarks as well.
5: Allison and I are extremely honored to um, be part of Entheon Village this year. And this is a kind of historic coalescing of the minds of science and art and spirituality to point toward a positive future for entheogens. And it's really what has come clearer is, is that for me, the future of visionary art, because this is a, a talk that uh, will go around the subject of um, the future of visionary or psychedelic art. Um, For me, it's important for us to um, not only wander in the desert, but begin begin to build a temple that is based on this uh, kind of new spirituality and urgency toward a more universal and embracing kind of... uh, love energy that cuts to the underlying core of the wisdom traditions to create spaces that um, birth new archetypes, the new universal archetypes that are emerging through our entheogenic experiences. I want to build the real entheon. I want to build the permanent temple that will house the psychedelic and spiritual, uh, you know, realizations that's coming through our communities and all the the great artists that are making work now.
0: uh, You know, we'd like to contribute the Cosm, the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors,
5: to such a structure. We know that there's numerous other kinds of collections of important relics. Um, Because I was thinking, like, a thousand years from now, Do you think that Dr. Hoffman's invention will be relevant if there is a human race? And I think yes. Um, We were just at Sharp Cathedral in um, France just earlier this summer. We made a pilgrimage there with Wisdom University. And uh, this is a place dedicated to the Divine Mother. And it was the, the, the mystery school that founded... Uh, Shark Cathedral was exactly a thousand years ago uh, this year, 2006. Bishop Fulbert creates this mystery school that led to the creation of the uh, cathedrals all over Europe. So a new kind of sacred space came out of this mystery school and it was through them going to their enemies uh, the Muslims that were being killed in the Crusades, these people went with a sense of there is an underlying unity um, in our spiritualities. And they found the Sufis, and the Sufis gave them a sacred geometry that helped them to birth the, uh, the cathedrals. And so, uh, you know, a thousand years later, we're still, you know, Christians killing Muslims And, uh, you know, humanity is at this kind of crisis point. And for all the wisdom traditions and for the new kind of uh, psychedelic visionaries uh, to come together and uh, find the underlying uh, threads of the perennial philosophy and the perennial visions that will sustain our real kind of mystic realities, bringing them into form, validating them for other people. That's what I feel like the real function of visionary art is, is it validates other people's uh, visionary states. And they say, you know, so many people come up
0: to me and say, my God, that, that piece you did reminds me exactly of this experience
5: that I had. And in a way, that validates me. But for them, many of them have said, Hey, man, I thought it was going crazy until I could show people your crazy ass shit. And uh, then, then I could demonstrate what I'm talking about. And so, so a sacred space would validate those kinds of uh, sort of mystic breakthroughs that we have that we don't see reflected in our world that often. And so there's a, uh, almost a morphic resonance kind of importance to creating these uh, outcroppings like Antheon Village here um, because we're, we, we're wanting to load our unconscious and our superconscious with these possibilities of our, uh, our own realization or our own, at least, uh, spiritual growth. So I see it as a very... Uh, <laughs> I, I'm really on fire about creating new permanent uh, sacred architecture. And uh, so I hope that, you know, it resonates with some of you. And uh, we built uh, this chapel, of Sacred Mirrors, in
6: New York City. Uh, and uh, I wanted to invite you see, this is how we this is sort of my, my scheme. I wanted to invite you to make sacred space in your home. You know, make yourself. A chapel. You don't have to call it a chapel if you don't want to. Call it whatever you want. But a sacred space in your personal space. Now, you could do it like on an altar. We all have them. We probably all have little altars. I bet everybody does. With crystals on it. You know, something positive. Just so we go, there we say, these are my beautiful, special things. But then, if you have ambition, like a lot of people here do, because it's amazing art. If you have ambition, Chapel in your backyard, or in your community, you know a community center like the Chapel of Second mirrors, make it. but if you want to make another chapel of second mirrors, if you want to say use Alex's art and make a replica of the Chapel of Second mirrors in your community or in your we can help you do that. I would love to help you do that. so yeah, so we're down for that, that you got you to gotta work with us all right that's the promise. And, and, and the promise is not to do it without us, because this is what it's all about, really. This is the bottom line. It's called honoring the source. See, we're all here to honor the source. We go there. We journey there. We see the source of creativity and the source of originality, the source of our creativity. And that's who we honor. It's the one. So I'm just saying, honor the one. Make your own chapel.
1: But if you want to make it with us, we'd love to help you. Just make it with us. I hope you will take to heart what Allison had to say just now about creating a sacred space in your own home. And if you're so inclined, I think it would be great if some of you created your own little mini chapel of sacred mirrors somewhere in your community. In a week or so, I'll be podcasting more of what Alex and Allison had to say along with the talks by Martina Hoffman and Roberto Venosa, who are also on the art panel at this year's Palenque Norte Lectures. And in that podcast, I hope to be able to pass along some other ideas about creating a sacred space that have been floating around in my own head for a while. But right now, I want to play a shortcut from Nick Sands' talk, and I'll warn you ahead of time, this particular recording isn't of the highest quality. The good news is that we actually did get Nick recorded with our last good mini-disc, but in order to get this podcast out today, I think I seem to be saying that over and over, (laughs) I'm using my tape backup version, mainly because I don't have the patience right now to figure out all the screwy crap my PC requires to input the mini-disc recording directly into my podcast software. Hopefully I'll be able to graduate to a Mac next year and give you all a little Better quality uh, sound quality here in these podcasts, but for now, here is how it actually sounded in the big tent at in Theon Village on the Saturday afternoon before the man burned. And the reason for that can be said in two
4: words: atomic bomb. And when I grew up, uh, I grew up under the shadow of the atomic bomb, and my father was second rank of the Manhattan Project and also the Chicago Substitute Outward Mills that made the first addition of all uranium. So I was very impacted by this growing up and watching the horrific uh, destruction of and vaporization of cities and people and thought to myself, there's got to be a better way than this. One of my father's, uh, exchange student was in the mm-hmm. was Raja. I thought that was his name. But he was actually a Raja from India. studying under my father at Columbia and Brooklyn, Tali, uh, to get his PhD in chemistry. He taught me yoga. And so I began to realize that besides the scientific background, there was also the spiritual side to life. And I began to look for the things which would open the spiritual world to me and soon discovered LSD, mescaline, ENT,
0: and in those days, there were research chemicals. They were easily obtained by simply walking into a buying house and saying, I'd like your catalog on number 1468, the less tertiary of gas, have when they please. Oh, well, yes, sir. And, and how much would you like to have? Oh, I'd say, look, this week I'll just have a tenth of a gram. And I'm dressed in cap student groups and Paisley, and you know, all of a sudden, they thought this was very novel, and I started to be friends with the presidents of these farm organic houses and making comments, for compounds for them, rare intermediates. that I was making DNT and DET and uh, L.S.D. and mescaline, and I was selling intermediates, which they could then resell to people interested in this, these compounds. I started to use uh, psychedelics, my first experience was mescaline. And I had such a profound experience uh, taking mescaline. I did it with a three-day fast, meditation, yoga. I believe strongly in uh, elaborate
4: preparation uh, for uh, a psychedelic sacrament. Uh, I think these are healing medicines, all of them, uh, either the the synthesized ones and also the plant helpers. <clears throat> I believe also that they can be used successfully and creatively for recreational use, and they can be also used for deep spiritual use. As the time went on, I had to make a decision, because the
0: restrictions began to uh, be applied by the FDA, who at that time, the only people... Who had any involvement with this? And so they would come around and they would say, Oh, Mr. Sand, I see you're here on this list of what people who have bought the, this experimental compound, Eli Surgery Gas for from In-toucher. Not that they could ever pronounce it correctly, but they attempted to. And um, I said, Oh, yes, that was really interesting. I thought there was came in a little teeny
4: bottle. And I said, Oh, dropped and fell on the floor. See that little
0: stain? I said, yeah, but what about the two pounds of mescaline that you ordered? Oh, the mescaline. That was great. We have to put that on the cereal every morning. It was wonderful.
4: Oh, it was me a very, very sparkly day. It's all fun. I said, oh, well, if you get any more would you please return it to the FDA or to the chemical? Absolutely, sir. Thank you. Slowly, slowly, I began to realize that the FDA was not going to be able to do the job that it had been appointed to do, which is to guard our safety and to guarantee the purity of the drugs and the safety of those drugs that we take. And that because of this weird gray zone that turned into a black zone of draconian uh, and evilly politically motivated laws, which had nothing to do with safe testing or anything like this, um, the drugs became more and more illegal and as a result people had to go deeper underground and did not have the um, ability to find pure psychedelics. So then a lot of problems occurred. In fact, many years after I was arrested, I had the opportunity to speak to uh, the head of the DEA uh, chemist's Uh, Bob Sager, and he said, you know, Nikki, when I was so, I was so glad when I busted you, and I was able to provide all the evidence, as we started to investigate this evidence, I noticed that all the orange sunshine tablets were exactly 300 miles, not 299, not 31. I was kind of like perplexed at how you managed to get such great precision. Then we started analyzing the material and we found it was absolutely pure, one spot material. And then I began to wonder about what I had done. And when we had got you safely away in prison, um, I realized that I had done a disservice to the public because the rotten mixture that had come after that, the poisoned so many people, um, were, were actually the results of our work. Eventually, I developed on Sunshine with Robert Timothy colleague, who was a disciple of Augustus Sousin Stanley, who
0: was the man who did the first production runs of LSD. Uh, That really kicked off the whole thing.
1: If you're a regular here in the Psychedelic Salon, then you probably already are familiar with Nick's story. And if you haven't heard it yet, you might want to download podcast number 37, which is a presentation of Nick's 2001 talk at Mind States that he titled Reflections on Imprisonment and Liberation as Aspects of Consciousness. One of the more interesting stories Nick told at Burning Man this year had to do with an aha moment he had many years ago, I might add when uh, he and four other major LSD chemists and or distributors realized that each of their fathers were deeply involved in the development of the atomic bomb. In fact, uh, one of their fathers was even on board the plane that dropped the first atomic bomb on a civilian population center. Personally, I find it quite fascinating that, to begin with, Dr. Hoffman's famous bicycle ride took place within a month or so of the first controlled atomic reaction at the University of Chicago. The first time I learned that little factoid, I think, was uh, in a talk that Sasha Shulkin gave about 20 years ago, and it's been bouncing around in my head ever since. What an interesting coincidence, if you uh, still believe in such things. You know, that the destructive power of the bomb was unleashed almost simultaneously with the discovery of what may be the world's most powerful psychedelic medicine. And now, to learn about how so many children of these early atomic scientists became important figures in spreading the healing properties of LSD to the world makes me want to come back and look into this a little more. And so, one of the things I've lined up for the not-too-distant future is to do a more focused interview with Nick about this topic. So if you have any particular questions you'd like to ask him, please send them to me and I'll try to work them in. You can just send them to Lorenzo at MatrixMasters.com. And while I'm at it, I guess I should mention our family of websites where you can find all of the past 47 podcasts in this series. There are a lot of ways to find us, like palenque psychedelicsalon.org. But uh, the easiest way, at least if you're somewhat spelling-challenged like I am, is to just go to matrixmasters.com and click on the podcast link. Just remember... You are the master of your own matrix, just as is everyone who visits the family of matrix Masters sites. One more thing I want to mention today has to do with the little gifts I made up to give out on the playa. For those of you who haven't yet been to Burning Man, I guess I should explain that it's a gifting economy. Not barter, but Gifting. What that means is that whenever the mood strikes you and if you've got something to give away, you just give somebody a gift for no particular reason at all. It's really strange until you get used to it because when somebody gives you something for no particular reason, at least for me, it makes me feel a little awkward, you know, like I should be giving them something in return. Maybe we'll discuss that in more detail one day, too, but the point I'm trying to get to is that the little gifts I made for this year were CDs with the first 30 podcasts on them. And since my CD burner started smelling funny after I made about 30 of them, that's all I had to take with me to the playa this year, and I gave them all away in the first few days, so those of you like Trevor and Robert and Joe and Brian and the dozens of others of you who Saloners that came up to me and said hello I wish I'd been able to give all of you a copy until I gave a few away it it didn't dawn on me that they would be of much use since you can still all download the podcast for free anyway but uh, as uh, somebody mentioned they said who wants to spend so much time downloading when they get 30 of them on a single cd and so here's what I'm wondering would it uh, be of any interest to some of you if we're Every 30 podcasts or so that I do, I also produce a CD of them, still in MP3 format, of course. For those of you who are just now joining us, though, and haven't been able to download them as you go along, would this uh, be anything that would be useful? If you're interested, just please send me an email to lorenzo at matrixmasters.com and let me know. And if there is enough interest in this, I'll have a hundred or so of them professionally made. You know, it looks like I can get them produced at a reasonable price in quantities as small as a hundred. But to invest in a hundred CDs that may never be sold isn't something I can afford to do right now. So, if this sounds like something that's uh, enough of you want, I figure I can. Probably hire a student to do the processing and shipping and still get, get them to you, I guess, for probably under 15 bucks in the U.S. or under $20 overseas, depending on what the freight works out to. Another thing, uh, by the way, that I learned from the psychedelic saloners I met at Burning Man is that some of you would like to get an RSS feed that lists all the programs, not just the 15 most recent ones. So I'll set up another feed to do this sometime soon, I hope. I can't promise when I'll get to it. And I'll let you know about that in a future podcast, too. Well, I'm going to have to bring this to an end right now because mainly I've still got a lot of playa dust to clean off of my camping equipment. Not to mention a pile of email to go through, but never fear, I'm not going to let so much time go by between podcasts again. At least uh, not until next year's burn, that is. I hope all is going well for those of you who weren't as fortunate as I was to have made it to yet another Burning Man festival. And I wish that all of you out there uh, speedy and gentle decompression to the default world. Darren and Mark and Michael and the rest of that gang that uh, provided all the sound for us. Uh, hey, thanks a lot. Hope the default world is treating you okay. The good news is that by the time you all hear this, there will be less than 356 days until the man burns again. For now... This is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.